your word. We thank you that it is strong and powerful as we approach now to hear your preached word. Um, Lord, might we come gratefully, might we come humbly, might we come ready to, to receive, to be uh, informed, to be nourished, to be strengthened. Lord, that indeed your word is living and powerful. And so we look forward to what you have in store for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Pray for Pastor Adam as he um, comes now to present and set the stage for us to hear from this book that uh, he would do so in a way that is driven by your spirit. Lord, we thank you now for this time. Pray that our time of worship around the word will be pleasing to you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. One of the things about um, preaching is that it's distinct from teaching. Yet, at the same time as you gather, there's overlap. So the balance in regular preaching is to strike a balance between teaching and informing of a level that's appropriate and helpful, and then not overly investing in teaching so as to change our worship hour to a classroom. The two overlap, but they are to be kept distinct in proportions. I say all that to say this morning, it's going to strike a little bit of a different tone as we look at the introductory time in Ecclesiastes than it normally would is what we would consider it more sermonic in tone or more preachy. It's a little bit more teachy this time as we approach the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the reason for that is not to bore you with detail that you otherwise don't need, which is often our attempts at times, is to bore you with information that we thought you needed. We find out oftentimes you don't, and we're happy without it. So I hope to convince you by the end that this was information you did need, and I carry that confidence as we go forward that I'll be able to persuade by the end that we kind of needed to do what we did this morning. So I hope you're kind of ready to be geeky for a few minutes with me regarding the book of Ecclesiastes. The reason for taking a tact of trying to wrestle with the book overall is, or in other words, before you wrestle with the book overall, is to approach some preliminary questions regarding the book, like Ecclesiastes, because Ecclesiastes remains a bit cryptic. When you read the book, maybe you didn't at this point in time so far think it was all that cryptic. It seemed pretty straightforward. I hope to confuse you, to draw you into the cryptic notions of the book, to then hopefully find a way out at the end of our study So I'm hopefully going to trip you up at the beginning, because maybe at the beginning you've assumed the authorship. Great, everyone did. And I'm going to maybe challenge the assumption regarding authorship. If I could start out with just the idea of what is going on in the book, because if we wrestle with the authorship, it's going to challenge how we read the book. What is the book about? I have put forward to you already in the reading of the book last week that the writer's attempt is to address a people, and that is to address us, the church of Christ. But originally, as he speaks to his audience, it is an attempt to address the people whose view of life is bound by the horizons of this world. 
They are looking horizontally. They are investing horizontally. And he wants to meet them there, not speak from a different arena to then correct their context, but to meet them on their own ground and then proceed to convince his listeners of the inherent vanity of their life being currently lived. This is expressed again and again through the book, and you'll see as we work our way through the book under this phrase, life under the sun. He is addressing each one who's living their life very concretely, measurably under the sun. This is the playing field. This is their level of concern. This is where they hope to succeed at the exclusion of what lies beyond life under the sun. So instead of saying, you know, I don't think you should do that, he is going to enter into the arena and expose it from within. This is why you can't do it. And so it is an apologetic of sorts, the way the book is being written. Now, for our best benefit of getting into the actual apologetic for several weeks, it would help out our, our journey if we could figure out authorship issues. Because if you were to sit down and read the book and you're saying, okay, so he's entering into the arena of a somewhat type of an apologetic against someone who lives their life merely for under the sun. What, is, what you see is what is real. And that's it. So I'm measuring my success by what I see, taste, touch in the marketplace. That's success. So as you begin to read the book, you're like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to square with some of the things that he's saying. There are contradictory statements here. There's unorthodox statements here. I mentioned that last week as that's given the church throughout history a bit of an uneasy feeling with the work of Ecclesiastes because there are things present that seem, I don't think we're supposed to talk like that. And here it is, right in Scripture, talking like that. Who wrote it that would talk like that? Because if we can grasp who did write it, it'll help how we understand why he talked like that. Some say that the book is, and and, and this is right down the middle where you'd say, oh, that must be extreme. No, none of these views are extreme. I'm going to put forward three views, and none of them are extreme. But maybe they're a little bit odd to us. Consider first, and this is just by brief introduction, I won't go into it. I'm going to put forward a proposal, so I don't want to burn all my time by telling everybody else's views. But let's say first off, some would say he's an agnostic. That's who wrote it, an agnostic. He's not sure of the meaning. You know, everything is vanity. There is no purpose to life, no reason to get all riled up, and no reason to get too invested. No reason to be too righteous, no reason to be too evil. Just kind of, you know, live and let live. He's an agnostic. That's who wrote the book. And we know that very clearly by what he says. So then if you were to say this morning, I do think the writer was an agnostic. There is no way of really truly finding out. There is no way of knowing the self. There is no way of knowing meaning. There is no way of knowing purpose. Maybe you've you've wrestled with these things. 
If you were to then uh, settle on, this is an agnostic, then you would read the book with a particular set of lenses on. And therefore, maybe you would come to the wrong conclusions. Some would then say, maybe he's not an agnostic, maybe he is a pure atheist. There is no God. There's no waiting to find out. It's straightforward. Look at the way that the evil prosper. Look at the way that the righteous are oppressed. You tell me. And have you not heard that apologetic now? Look at tragedy. Look at major events. Look at how the wicked prosper. Look at how this went down in culture. Look at how this is the, the, the currency of our day. There is no God. I mean, come on. And then you proceed to hear everything is vanity. Maybe we don't use that terminology exactly now, but we would say something to the fact there's no point. So again, live and let live. Whether we don't know, we're not sure, I'm not sure, I'm trying to observe, or I guarantee you we know and there is no God. However that approach is, that will color how you read and receive the book. Some then say... He is an atheist or an agnostic, not sure. But what we do know is one key thing of why it's in the Bible. We're kind of not sure of why it's in the Bible, but we could put forward a good idea. And that is, at the end, you notice an editor pops up at the end of the book and corrects the entire thing. If you notice, right at the end of chapter 12, someone pops in and is like, okay, you know, maybe there's some decent insight here, but by the way, the real thing that matters is fear God and keep his commandments, case closed. And then you move into the Song of Solomon. You're like, okay, all right, I got that out of my Bible reading. Fear God. Okay, great. Because I was not sure where he was going from chapter 1 to chapter 12. But you, you got it. And, and so we say, great. So then it was incorporated in canon as a way to not view your life. And that is chapters 1 through 11 and a half. And then in chapter 12, the editor makes clear God's intention for you is to fear him and keep his commandments. So you're like, okay, so wow, that's a terrible view of life, but a great ending. Um, so, so who did write the book? An agnostic? An atheist? A believer? What believer? How can we be sure? Well, if we could just briefly note the book. The term for the book of Ecclesiastes is the term kohelate. That is the, like if you were to look in your Hebrew Bible, that would be the title. Kohelate is, and what it's taken from is a verb to kaha, to call, to call an assembly. That's what the book stands for. Someone is gathering an assembly. That's Ecclesiastes. There is the preacher or the teacher or the one who kahals, who calls an assembly. That is the Kohelet. That is the terminology of the book. It is then translated into your English or transliterated from its Greek into its English that says Ecclesiastes. So the book, that's what it is. You're about to sit back and listen to a preacher or a teacher, a wise wisdom instructor who is calling you this morning, the assembly. He is calling forth an assembly to presumably teach something to put forward something of wisdom. It is dead set in the wisdom tradition of Israel. So you're familiar with that. If you were to look back on the book of Proverbs or something like that, you'd recognize wisdom tradition in Israel. The father, the mother, call forth the son, and then they posit forward or transmit wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is he who calls, or the wise teacher, the wise preacher, who calls an assembly to do what? The same thing as wisdom. 
transmit truth, instill wisdom. That's what the book is about. So as you look at Ecclesiastes, what's its point? It is to call forth an assembly to sit underneath or at the feet of a wise sage and to receive wisdom to live by. Wisdom tradition is about observing basic principles that govern the earth. Observe them. Meditate upon them. Like, you know, for instance, throw a brick in the air and move out of the way. If you don't, it's going to land and hit you. Observable facts, observable wisdom. And then we transmit that to the next generation and they say, oh, there's skill for living. There's wisdom. I heard from the wise teacher how to get out of the way of bricks that are falling. That's a, that's a skill for living. You're going to make it another day if you observe it. It goes beyond that, obviously, if you read the book of Proverbs and you enter into Psalms and you continue with Job, you learn skill and patterns for, wi- for living. The idea of authorship early thought with Ecclesiastes, and again, I hope to persuade you by the end why you needed to know this information. Early tradition, of course, could anyone guess who the early as the author of Ecclesiastes? Okay, great, yes. So early tradition assumed Solomonic authorship. This was the working assumption for three reasons. If I could read them for you and put them forward, and then what we'll do with the early tradition, we'll close in history, it's challenge, and then finally I will put forward hopefully a brief proposal for how we can read the book and glean insights for the next several weeks. The working assumption of Solomonic authorship is threefold. Number one, and you could probably guess why this makes sense in the early tradition, is that uh, it seemed to be the most natural way, number one, the most natural way to read the text itself. If you look there in verse one of chapter one, you'd sit down and you'd open the text of scripture and read the words of the preacher, or Kohelet, he who calls an assembly, the words of the preacher, the son of David, King in Jerusalem. Now, right off the bat, you'd say, number one, it makes sense to me that early Solomonic authorship is right because, yeah, it is a pretty natural way to read the text. And we all know the obvious meaning is a good one to go with oftentimes. Why create trouble when there isn't any? It seems to be pretty straightforward. Son of David, Jerusalem, he was wise. We remember in Sunday school if we attended. Yeah, that works. It's Solomon. So it naturally came forward as the author of Ecclesiastes. Number two, Solomon's life is put forward quite clearly as the backdrop for the context for the book itself. If we observe Kohelet's sayings, his observations, and we put them in context, quite clearly we must all admit Solomon's life is what's being talked about. I mean, we would struggle to find a different context that makes such observable, applicational wisdom that is so precise, like the end the editor says, are those nails. I mean, they're in there, they're precise, they drive you on, they, they poke you to the side of their insights. They call for you to act upon them. Surely Solomon's life is the context for such observances. Number three, so number one, it's the most natural way to read the text. Just open your Bible and read, and you'll be a Solomon believer. The option. Secondly, Solomon's life, essay, essay, task, task, topic, topic, is clearly Solomon's life. 
Number three, why Solomon rose early on as the author of Ecclesiastes, or he who is the preacher, is that Solomon did the work of assembling Israel regularly. And we even have those within Scripture that then strengthen our thought of Solomon. I imagine each of us, as we consider Solomon, we could view Solomon as a man of wisdom, clearly, as Scripture teaches, that certainly we could see him in a podium somewhere calling forth Israel and Ka'al, that is, calling and assembling the people to presumably import wisdom. That, that seems pretty straightforward, like surely Solomon did that. He did. And we have evidence of such if you were to go to 1 Kings 8. If you have your text, just look over what strengthens our idea here on the third persuasive comment that it is Solomon who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, or better yet, as we read and teach through Ecclesiastes, he is Kohelet. He is the preacher. That's him. And again, the third reason why it is helpful and persuasive is because we see him in Scripture itself attesting to the fact that Solomon calls assemblies. He imported the wisdom of the people. He didn't just own it for his own observation, and when the queen came to observe it and analyze it, and the women with their child were testing it, and Solomon performed his wisdom, we see his wisdom everywhere. It's got to be from his pen. One observation is, yes, it certainly seems that it is plausible. First Kings 8, if you notice there, First Kings 8, verse 1, then Solomon Assemble the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes. So you see him doing the work of calling the tribes together, the leaders of the fathers, the houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David. There's that other piece, right? Which is Zion. Verse 2, and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month. And uh, then he goes on, all the elders came up, they brought in, verse 5, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were within the ark, and so on and so forth. Verse 22, it continues, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. By the time we get through, we get dropped down into verse 55 of the same chapter, again, just to kind of saturate our minds with the idea of Solomon authorship, which will shape how we read the book for the next several weeks. Verse 35, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel. So again, if I could then, with that kind of picture, it is the most natural way, verse 1, his life, topic to topic, is clearly the context for such observations, and number 3, he did the work of the Preacher in Israel's past, calling for the assembly to impart wisdom or lead in worship. So, in summary of the early view of authorship, Ecclesiastes has been viewed as a type of sermon of Solomon unto Israel. It is a sermon which topic is wisdom to those who are pursuing the things of the earth to the exclusion of the things of heaven. In other words, Solomon is preaching to the foolish. He is preaching to the simple. Those who are just making critical errors 
his own wisdom ought to serve him. Error after error. Pursuit that is empty after pursuit that is empty. This is the conclusion to the historical view, which I do put forward to you. It does make a lot of sense. It is quite straightforward. But then, as you know, with one established view, then along comes a challenger, right? So, uh, you know, it's shrouded in yet another person who rises to say, it is not someone of authorship, and we are reading the text wrongly. And that individual historically came, I'm going to convince you in the end why you needed to know this information. <laughs> His name is Mark Luther. Which you kind of think, well, I don't know what we do with Luther. By the time we get to change in the New Testament, we have some real problems, too. Maybe if, if Luther's the only challenge, then let's just move on. It's Solomon. Now, we know better. So we pause here, Luther. Luther makes a challenge that then is, to the historical view, a real smash at its foundation. Plus, splintering cracks that then lead to more essays, more debates, more books. Kind of like what they like to say. There's no end to the books, my books, my books. So, a bit of a profit there. So, as he rises and ready to challenge the status quo of the author of Ecclesiastes, and it isn't just because Luther likes to brawl that he comes up with the idea, let's take down Ecclesiastes. Solomon's not the preacher, but it was this comment by an author who says Luther was probably the first in church history to deny Solomonic authorship. He regarded the book as a sort of Talmud, complied of many books, probably from the library of King Ptolemy of Egypt. That's where Luther went with the book. Now, a Talmud, as you consider Jewish Talmud, it is the idea of instruction, compiled insight, compiled instruction. It's additional information of which is conscience finding. You need to learn it. You need to observe it. You need to apply it. And Luther comes along and says, that's what we possess in Ecclesiastes. It's not the word of Solomon. It's a compilation. So when you go from Sermon 1, let's say, let's say, um, topic 1, vanity of wisdom, you're there in chapter 1, you see the first vanity that he begins to enter into and deconstruct is vanity of wisdom itself. Topic one. Then you go over into chapter two. And I don't want to give away all the things we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead. They're like, well, if those are the sermons. I'll pick which one I'm attending. <laughs> so, so I won't tell you all of them, just a couple. The next one is you see there, but straight for straight forward, chapter two, self-indulgence, vanity of self-indulgence. Okay, so we got another one. So so Luther's looking at it and saying, it's not the work of Solomon putting all of this together as he observes his life lived under the sun or the life of others who are following his footsteps and he's warning them. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is a book of compiled wisdom sayings. One on wisdom, one on self-indulgence, one on finance, one on sex, one on prosperity. Put them all together and you have a tallman of sorts, a book of instruction with multiple hands at stake in the literature. Bound together in canonized. It's not the work of Solomon. Moreover, it's probably compiled from the library of King Ptolemy in Egypt. Now, I'm, I, I've weighed out, but we don't need to know more than that. 
there's too much it. work leading forward to tears. The idea is, in summary, it's a big issue. In other words, the way you analyze the language on the pages, you say this form of Hebrew was not working during the day of Solomon's authorship. It wasn't that he, writing, would not write with these words. It's not the same. So that changes the date of when the book was compiled for Luther. That therefore means whoever compiled it or wrote it can't be the person who would have used a different form of Hebrew, which would bend the date. So who used what when? And the date of the book moves it over here where Luther weighs in and says it is a compilation word from a different era, a different date of Solomon, and that is probably from the library of King Solomon in Egypt. That's the idea. So, could I walk you through some of the more basic observations beyond the statistics or the form of Hebrew grammar and kind of put something forward together for our next few weeks in the book? Number one, that is, what is the first and foremost challenge that those who have kind of taken the contrasting view that it isn't the work of Ecclesiastes, of which will shape how we hear the book, what is the first and most straightforward challenge how did it get started, in other words? And that is, if you look at verse 1, here's the first foot forward for the challenge that Luther raised about the author not being Solomon. And that is the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. You say, wait a minute, you just used that for the reason why it is Solomon. So how can somebody look at one verse that clearly says he was king, clearly says he was son of David, who we know to be a wise preacher, who we know to be Solomon, and say, that's the very verse that stands out to undermine the idea that it's Solomon who wrote it. How does that work? And you know, you've been around people that debate or in the theology discussions, people are twisting all of the same facts they're both looking at, and both are standing firm on them. No, I'm telling you, this is what it says. No, I'm telling you, this is what it says when you're looking at the exact same thing. So, quite naturally, verse 1 stands out as that diverges, both sides claiming it makes no sense for the other. Why not? Where's Luther coming from? If you could, quick, go over to Proverbs 1. Go over to Proverbs 1. We will wrestle with the idea of how to read both based on who it is that wrote it and put it together so we can grasp what it is he's writing about and glean most of its insights as we can. If you look over to Proverbs 1, in verse 1, here's where Luther began. Right here, case closed. Can't be Solomon, because if you look at the wisdom tradition of which Solomon did contribute, he always put his own stamp upon it. Chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. Son of David. Kingdoms. So, bingo, there it is for Luther. Shot number one. Why would Solomon not sign his own name? Because there is functionally no purpose to Solomon not writing as he did already this, of which you hear, of what I hope to be conscience fighting, of what I hope you to glean, what I am earnest that you live by. Stop looking at life under the sun and look at life beyond the horizon. Why would he then withhold his name? Leave it to our own discernment. Why not just say it? That's shot number one. 
A couple of additional issues, if I could, before we just put forward our proposal for our time together. And that is, number one, I have five of them. We won't look all of them up, but I do have five of them. I would, yeah, actually, we will look up each one of them. So if you would look at number one in verses 12 and 13, and this is what I'd like to do in our approach here, is look within the text and then kind of follow Luther's track so that we can say, so are these observations of what we're making about the book coming from within the text itself, or are we drawing on mortality, we're just drawing on bad associations, and then we're piling them onto the text. For Luther, let's look, let's walk, let's see the observations within the text, and then arrive at a conclusion to make a proposal. Number one, look at verse 12 and 13 of chapter 1, that then begins to build on chapter 1, verse 1, and here it is. I, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over, over Israel in Jerusalem. And I have applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What Luther marks there is in the context of vanity and misery does not reflect the days of Solomon at all. Thus he says in verse 12, I, did you notice it there? I have been. Not I am, but I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Luther says, aha, see, I have been. We're looking at whoever this would be. We're looking at their time as king in Israel or over Israel in Jerusalem. And if you look at the text, it's a vanity. It's all vanity. It's a waste. And that was not the mark of Israel in the days of Solomon. So it would have to be that Solomon is looking back and he's saying, I was king. And during that time, here's the observation, it was a waste. Luther saying it wasn't. The days of Solomon kingship were not vanity in Israel, but abundance. Mark number one, the context of the enemy in Israel does not reflect the days of Solomon. Number two, the second is found in chapter 7, verse 1. If you look again at chapter 7, verse 1, of the next piece within the text, that is one reading says, Who is this author? How is this book being constructed? Is it odd that Solomon would say that? Is that Solomon who did say that? Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of birth. Again, making an observation on this text of desiring the day of death over the day of birth explains or contextualizes Israel in the place of death and injustice. When he looks out, in other words, he observes, number two, he observes that death is better than birth. All that I observe of all of the injustices. And I too was yet another mark that put forward a challenge. The idea is this Solomon's own reflections? That as he was king, or, or look back as he was king, that it was better indeed to die. You wished for the days of death, over the days of birth. You will mourn at birth. You will look for 
the challenging view against kind of gains and stability. It doesn't seem to solve a really good observation. Number three, the third one, as you read the text, you continue to chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and then join me with 8, 9. In verse 9, then, what is going on? What is the comment here about Salmonic authorship? Verse 9, all this, of chapter 8, he says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun. While man, now look at when he puts a context on it and is observing this and looking at these movements in Israel, he says, when man had power over man to his hurt. Now, if we were to go through the chapter and continue in the context, Solomon is referring to the days of tyranny. In Luther, makes the observation, it would be odd for Solomon to look at his own time of rule as a time of tyranny. When he ruled over men with an iron fist, men experienced under his leadership, iron rule. It doesn't seem that he ruled over man for his hurt. Yet, is this individual looking back on his time as ruler? Or is he looking to other rulers now that he's passed off the scene of it? Well, this is our final observation, and that is, again, if you go back then to chapter 1, chapter 1, it's our final observation to make, and that is Verse 16. The final comment to the challenging view that rises to say, this is not the work of Solomon. We are not looking at the nature <coughs> who is himself Solomon as much as perhaps previously we assumed by a natural reading of the text. But if we read carefully, the challenge says, Verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all is your underlying term there. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience with wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask you one insight as the tone of our time together this morning to the difference. How many ruled from Jerusalem over all of Israel before Solomon? Notice the writer says all, and you're like, doesn't care. I hate Bible studies to do that. Because the only one who knows the answer to that who studied all week. It's so annoying. <laughs> it is. I really don't like doing that. I always found that annoying. But here I am doing it. <laughs> well, I'll give you the answer because that's really the annoying thing to do to people. The answer is David, right? So it's a bit of an overstatement, not necessarily. On doing Solomon's authorship. What is a bit of an overstatement to say that he surpasses all who rule over Jerusalem before him? Um, yeah, they did. So, and then it goes to David, it would be Jebusite kings who ruled and reigned there before David. It would be either to refer to non Israelite kings. In other words, no one ruled over Jerusalem for Solomon. So it's an overstatement for Solomon to observe about his own life that he surpassed all, that is, every one who reigned before him. Again, dating the material. So if I go, that's my fifth and final. I think I skipped one, but I'm going to keep moving forward. That is where we have been today. Like, what, what's the end game for our time together?
view and then you weigh and balance someone authorship. Where are we at? Is there a consensus finally? So there's the early view. Here's the challenging view. And then the ripple effects go on for us to debate forever. So by the year 2015, we're in the month of July. Where's the land that lay out at this point? Is there a consensus by now? And the answer is, take a deep breath. No. There's no consensus. Surprise, surprise. We would rather write essays, I'm sure, than to find something agreeable. So the waters divide. Who then wrote the book? Are we just simply, is it all vanity? Vanity of vanity is the author of these assets. Is there no point? Is there no purpose? I thought you said there was when we began 30 minutes ago or whatever. Well, if I could then put forward a proposal from the text itself, just briefly, I won't keep this here long, but if I could put forward a brief proposal for how we can positively identify some sense of authorship, but really in the end, I don't want to say it, but it's kind of true. A little bit. Kind of, kind of. It is a bit of vanity to worry too much about the authorship. Because at the end, if it is the actor, the editor again says, all the wisdom of the spoon comes from him. Do you remember? It comes from one ship. All wisdom is wisdom. So whether it's pinned specifically by this guy, or pinned specifically by the ten editors, or somewhere in between, all wisdom comes from one ship. Is the editor's work? A brief, brief proposal, number one. Is there an editor? Is there an editor at work in the book of Ecclesiastes which will shape the way we read the book? I would suggest to you that there is indeed a narrator or an editor. How so? We'll consider also the third person usage, right? Um, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings. We were watching that recently. Uh, uh, and as our, our family, uh, the youngest one, Owen, was watching with me and Abraham. And um, you know, if you remember the alien figure, uh, Spiegel, or, or uh, uh, he refers to himself as Spiegel. That's the point of what I'm getting at. But the uh, novel. And so he refers to himself as Spiegel likes such and such. You know, uh, uh, you know, Spiegel likes Master. I don't know. Maybe none of you have any idea about the. I can tell it's an extremely mixed perception. So the idea is. He's speaking of himself in third person, this individual. The preacher says, you know, if I came up here and he said, you know, the preacher on Monday, he, and I just say something, you know, that's okay, that's odd to do. Um, so perhaps what we learn by the use of third persons, to be to your point, is the use of narrator. He, he's weighing in and guiding you, the reader, through the, through the preacher's sayings. Consider verse Two in one of the first chapter, the words of the preacher. Now, what are the words of the preacher? Verse two, vanity, vanity, says the preacher. Or you know, uh, I don't know. I, I can't figure something out off the top of my head. You get the idea. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. If you were to chapter seven, verse twenty-seven, quickly. Seven twenty-seven. If we were there, he says, um, "Behold, this is what I found," says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. That's what the preacher was doing. So, so, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. 
creature, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things. If you jump down to what I've referred to several times in chapter 12, just briefly, chapter 12, verse 9, is really where the narrator crowd really picks up steam. And that is Peter as he winds down in verse 8 of chapter 12. Vanity of vanities, once again, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, arranging many problems with great care. So in other words, what I would put forward for us in the reading and seeing the preacher pop up being quoted by another is that there is a narrator greatly at work providing the structure to the preacher's saying. So he is saying, he is framing it in a way to guide us through the preacher's insights. This is what the preacher's saying to you. This is how the preacher acted. The preacher, besides doing all this, also does that. He is providing a structure to the preacher's sayings. But the question still remains, who then is the preacher? So even if you grant that there is the work of a narrator piecing together the preacher's saying, the question then still stands forward. Who then is the preacher? That is, now everyone take a deep breath. Most likely, this is me, not you, but me, most likely, the preacher is the narrator. And this is how I would express it. I think it's rather convincing. The preacher is the fictitious literary creation of the narrator himself. Now, maybe you heard what I said, and that is that the preacher is a fake individual that the narrator created in order to crack the transcript of wisdom. Immediately then, when it's trying to get a court, it seems a bit deceitful, or a bit dishonest. It certainly wouldn't square with inerrancy. It certainly wouldn't square with inspiration. It seems like so we're being psyched out by someone who's pretending to be someone else, don't you teach everybody that it's inappropriate? And now it's canonized as someone pretending to be someone else to teach you something? Is that, is that great at its core? Are we uneasy with that? Is the idea of deceit or an underhanded way of teaching us truth? I wouldn't say that, but so-and-so said that. That, that. that kind of model of transmitting God's word. If I could go forward this, this is not deceitful because it is a recognized genre during this time known as fictional royal autobiography. Now, did I just sidestep the issue? I hope not. Because it was a recognized form of communicating and translating wisdom. I probably wish outside literary kind of balance that. In, in other words, is this brand new that somebody would kind of create an individual, put him forward, and through that individual, transmit truth? I mean, we need to wait then if you think it's appropriate to view the text of Holy Scripture that way or not. And then I'll leave that with you. But is it outside the balance? And is that how things are or are not done. Well, consider just one brief example. Again, if you receive that it was a genre in play historically at the time. They read it, in other words, they read it in concert to what it was. 
They knew royal autobiography fiction. That, that okay, great. I'm receiving this context. I'm watching this movie with this understanding. I'm reading this book with this understanding. I'm considering this wisdom with this understanding. I know, in other words, the vehicle through which it's coming, and it's telling me so. It's not trying to deceive. One author makes this note. In other words, the narrator creates a figure like Uncle Remus. I looked that up on the internet. I'm initiated. He creates a figure like Uncle Remus to represent himself as the ideal embodiment of wisdom under those who are. Now, is that fair? Is, it, is that really what's occurring? It's not deceitful because of the genre knowing the time to convey truth through sexuality. It's not full and fast enough. Now, I wind out our time as I land this plane, as I put forward again, that the preacher, the preacher says, the preacher says, is a fictitious literary creation of the narrator himself. This is how we're going to read the book, or at least I will present it as such. And again, the weighing of the balance remains with you. But he is trying to transmit wisdom as the ideal embodiment of such through the vehicle of the preacher. I answer the final question of our time together, as I said that I would, and I might not be able to convince you now as I landed, but I would put it forward this way. This assists us in determining the purpose of the book. Knowing this information assists us in gleaning the insights from the book. How so? I began that way, and hopefully in my last comment here, I can prove such. Or in other ways, we would ask it like this. Given this information, what is its purpose then? Or if we were to adopt this view, what is he doing in the book? The narrator, preacher, individual. Well, the answer is found largely in verse 12 of chapter 12. If you look over at chapter 12, we were just there, but this is kind of the answer of what he's trying to do in the book. That is the narrator, or the Uncle Remus kind of character. He who shows up. And then if I could make one last note about the authorship, it is since, kind of on Luther's criticism, since he didn't say, this is Solomon, and then I put forward, it's not really Solomon. Now, if you see the difference in the Greek, where a real problem would be at that point. An extreme problem. Uh, oh, but, but do you notice that's Luther's point? He doesn't need to be Solomon. Solomon would have stamped it. Well, then what is he doing? Well, verse 12 of chapter 12 is this as we wind out our time. Well, let me start verse 11. The words of the wise are like roads, and like nails firmly fixed, are like black and sandals. They are given by one ship. This is the narrative picture all together. Verse 12, my son. Beware of anything beyond this. Making many books there is going and much study is a myriad of flesh. You see, the narrator represents himself as a Solomonic figure without claiming to be Solomon in order to teach his son inspired wisdom. That place is Ecclesiastes well within the wisdom tradition of Israel. 
genuine faith to show young people how to maintain their faith in circumstances that militated powerfully against it. The wise, the words of the wise are like those and like nails firmly fixed part of what they say. They are given by the Father, I pray that you would add to our insights. Look at the narrative. He who you inspire, holy men, moved by the Holy Spirit, to write inspired and inerrant words of truth that were not valuable lessons to them, but are valuable lessons to us, the one church of Jesus Christ. We praise you for these words saying, we praise you for the word of the preacher. We praise you for wisdom. That is incorporated in the scripture again, that we can rest on and receive as without error and fully inspired as we confess to the Thank you for the text of Ecclesiastes. Strengthen our congregation, all of us, to consider our life wisely, to correct where we have made errors, way too heavily on life lived under the sun. Strengthen us by mercy. <coughs> To live for life beyond the sun. Christ in you. Amen. As we are.